Oh, amen. Oh, my heart is full of praise and wonder of God. Just the wonder of it all. Praise the Lord. Thankful for all of our young children and junior church and workers that are leading them this morning. Thank you for all of your ministries, church, all the different places you serve and the outreach during the week. What a blessing. What a praise. We are in Romans chapter 11. This morning, we'll only look at verses 33 through 36. And this evening at our communion service, we might get through verse 1 of chapter 12. We'll see. I'm going to try to get through verse 1 this evening. But um, we'll, we'll take our time looking at verses 33 through 36 of Romans 11. Let's pray. Father, this is such a lofty text. It comes after 11 chapters of incredible revealed truth. None of us deserve eternal life. None of us deserve fellowship with you. We have sinned and separated ourselves, been alienated through the wickedness of our minds and actions. We deserve nothing but eternal punishment, torture, torment for forever and ever. In doing that, you would be just and right and holy and awesome. And yet, by your grace, you humbled yourself that Jesus came and took upon himself flesh. He bore our sin. He suffered on the cross in our place. The agony of his soul, Father, when there was no fellowship between you and him on the cross. We can't even fathom it. But when that three o'clock hour happened, outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus cried out, it is finished. Our sin and the sin of the world had been paid in full. And Jesus, on the first day of the week, rose from the dead bodily and rules and reigns and sits at your right hand with power and authority, and he is coming again, and we praise you for that. And all at last will be well. Right now, Father, we're in this in-between time, waiting for the coming of Christ so give us strength and courage. Give us the powerful outreach of the gospel through our words and testimony that many will be saved, your church will be strengthened, and you will receive all the glory, power, and praise and honor now and forever. Amen. Romans 11. At the conclusion of 11 chapters of a lot of deep doctrinal theological truth, Paul says this, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. I don't know if you have an outline um, that I didn't hand them out, actually. They're all on the entryway table. But please feel free to take an outline with you this morning as you leave the church. It has everything kind of in a condensed form of what I'm going to say now. But after looking at the sinfulness of man, our alienation from God, our, our having no hope, Jesus came to rescue us, give us his grace, pay our sin, rise from the dead. Israel, who years ago rejected the Lord, wanted to earn righteousness on their own through their own good works, having been set on the shelf, and then the church being formed, and for 2,000 years, this is happening, and then Israel has a future glorious plan. I mean, after all of this, Here's what, the, here's what the Apostle Paul does. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom, of knowledge of God. This, this phrase, oh, the depth, it is not defining a depth. 
but it's marveling at a depth. There's a big difference. How many of you have been to a hotel and you look at the hotel swimming pool and it has like three foot marks and then along the edges you follow it'll say four feet and then it'll say five feet and then eight feet. Why, why the markings of water depth? Because the hotel wants you to know and the insurance company wants you to know at some point you will be in over your head. Be careful. Watch out, right? So there is a depth. To the, to the Lord, but, but Paul's not speaking right now about the depth. He's talking about marveling at the depth. He's saying, oh, the ways of God and the plan of God and the purpose of God, it, it is, I'm in way over my head over this. God is unfathomable. He is unexplainable. He is incomprehensible. He is far greater than anything that I can imagine. If you put a little grasshopper here on the pulpit and you compare me to the grasshopper, I hope you would say there's a little bit of a difference. I do have the ability to still go to work and drive on my own, and this grasshopper doesn't have quite those capabilities. However, I am much closer to the grasshopper with wisdom and understanding and ability than I am to the infinite God. The difference between me and the infinite holy God, even though I'm made in his image and renewed in his image through salvation, yet he is infinitely great and infinitely wise and infinitely powerful, and I am just a man. So do you see? Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. It's, it's an absolute marvel that the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge. I see three things here. I see the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God that Paul is, is seeking to marvel about. This God that we serve, that we think we might know, is far greater than we can imagine. Everything that's been revealed in the Word of God just gives us, it gives us a scratch. It gives us a glimmer into the actual person and glory of our God. If we were to see the fullness of God's glory, we would be burnt to a crisp even right now. He is that awesome. He is that great. He is that incredible. Don't ever forget it. This text is designed to make us small and reveal the magnitude, the inexhaustible magnitude of the glory and the grandeur of God. There's three things that Paul is marveling about. Oh, the depth. Here it is. Oh, the depth of the riches. Christ is rich. God is rich. Psalm chapter 50 says, Every beast of the field is his. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. He owns every galaxy and every planet and every spinning star. He owns every dust on every speck of everything that's been created. He owns every tree, every blade of grass. He owns every fish, every bird, every person. He owns every car. He owns every house. He owns every street. He owns everything. He is rich in all things. But I don't think that this is necessarily what the richness is talking about. Paul's not thinking, oh, the depth of the riches. Wow, does he have a lot of money. Boy, does he have a lot of property. It's called earth and every planet. You know, I think he's speaking about other things. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the Bible says that God is, he has riches of goodness and mercy toward us. Do you want to know the depth of the riches of God's goodness? God is good to you. He is good to you. Sin, evil, the devil, they're bad. They have nothing in good for you. They will entice you and tempt you to love the world and its system But they offer nothing good. God has riches of goodness in Romans 2.4. If you look at Romans chapter 9, verse 23, it says here that God is rich. He might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. The riches of his glory. So not only is God rich in goodness, he is rich in glory. 
No, you know what glory is. Glory is the summation of all the attributes of God. It is everything in his character and personality. If you could somehow reveal it all, that would be the fullness of his glory. In the Hebrew, it was the Hebrew word kavod. Glory in the Hebrew is kavod. In the New Testament, it's doxa, doxology, doxa, praise. It's an interesting word. But the, the Hebrew word kavod, you know what the word kavod means? It means heavy. It means heavy of great magnitude. And for the Hebrew mind, the Jewish mind, if I have a still pond and I take a little pebble and I throw a little tiny lightweight pebble into the pond, what does it make? Tiny little ripples. If I take a big boulder and I cast it into the pond, what does it make? Big waves, big influence. And the bigger the rock, the heavier the rock, the bigger the waves, the greater the impact. Quite a few years ago on December 24th or 25th, um, remember that tsunami that happened off the coast of India down there? And like 250,000 people were swept away by the waves of of a tidal wave that came upon shore. They have video of it if you Google it. Literally, the waves are encompassing villages deep into the land, deep into the countryside. This is God's glory. He, he, is, he is the most influential person is God that there ever can be. He makes an impact and an influence. That's his, that's his glory. So he's rich in glory. Take your Bibles, look with me at, he, at uh, Romans 10, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. God is not only rich in goodness, he's not only rich in glory, but in Romans chapter 10, he is rich in his spiritual blessings to all who believe. Do you know what he has done? He has wiped away my record of sin, completely wiped it away. Everything that I have done against him to be remembered no more, to be cast as far as the east is to, as from the west, to be thrown into the depths of the sea. He is rich in goodness, he is rich in glory, and he is rich in spiritual blessings of grace to all of us. In Ephesians 1, verse 7, through the death of Jesus Christ, take your Bibles, might as well t- check out what God's word says, Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Every sin wiped clean. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, just a few pages farther. God says, To me, Paul writes, Who am less than the least of all the saints, the great, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There's unsearchable riches in Christ. If you have Jesus Christ, you have everything. You have unsearchable riches. If you do not have Christ, you have nothing. You may have a bank account, and you may have some savings, and you may have a vacation planned. You may have houses and boats and cabins, but it's all going to perish. You don't take anything with you. God is rich. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, we won't go there, but the riches of God, um, those who are rich in material things, Paul says, don't trust your material riches. They vanish as fast as can be. Stock market crash, thieves, moth, rust, everything, everything eventually is going to be taken down. Um, but God gives richly all things to, to enjoy. So God is rich even in these physical resources. Well, what about his wisdom? Paul's amazed at the depth of the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is his knowledge applied to everything. 
It's his knowledge applied to directing and purposing and planning all of the, the, the providential plan of God for rescuing sinful mankind. His wisdom is amazing. Knowledge. I don't think there's too much of a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is all of the facts, everything that God knows and that could be known. For all time, all at once, God's knowledge is perfect and it's complete. I always think of, for me, the difference between wisdom and knowledge. I have knowledge that the tomato is a fruit. Did you know that? It's not a vegetable. The tomato is a fruit. That's knowledge. Wisdom is not putting the tomato in a fruit salad. That's wisdom. It's applied knowledge. It's, 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 it's using the knowledge correctly. So if I had all knowledge but no wisdom, I'd be like the brilliant professor that has degree upon degree upon degree and can tell and master many things, yet I can't find my own way home. That's, that's knowledge without wisdom. If I had wisdom but I did not have knowledge, I would be like the military general that has the plan and the perfect execution to win the battle, but I have no communication or people or way to do it. So we need both. And guess what? God is infinitely deep in his riches, in his wisdom, and in his knowledge. Wow, praise be to God. Isn't he amazing? There's nothing that God does not know, and no purpose of his can be thwarted. Look at what else it says in Romans chapter 11. I have been so excited about this text. Verse 33, oh, the depth, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Then he says this, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. How unsearchable and then ways past finding out, it's inscrutable. God's ways and judgments, they're unsearchable. They're, they're untraceable. They cannot be tracked. They cannot be fathomed. They cannot be comprehended fully. It's, it's like... It's like his footsteps are on the water, but we just don't know where he came and where he went. We just see his, his work happening. So Paul says his judgments and his ways are unsearchable and they're inscrutable. You know what I, what I think he could have said? He could have said God's secret ways and secret plans are unsearchable and unknowable. Isn't that true? God's got all these secret plans for, the etern- for eternity. I don't know them, and so they're unsearchable and they're untrackable. And I can't comprehend them because they're known only to God. But that's not what the text says. You want to know what's unsearchable? Do you want to know what's inscrutable? That that can't be fathomed and comprehended? It's the actual plan of God that has been revealed. That's what's unknowable. He's given us in 11 chapters how God rescues sinful man to make him right with him. How Israel, having rejected the Lord, opened the door to salvation to the Gentiles. And yet God is going to come back and work with the Jewish people and redeem them again as well. That's unsearchable. It's, un, it's unfathomable. I, I can't even comprehend it. Who could design a plan of salvation like this? No man can. His judgments, unsearchable and inscrutable. His judgments, it, it could refer to all of the decisions that God makes to bring about all of ma- the history of mankind. All the free will choices. After church, we're going to go weed the roundabout. We're going to have bags and buckets of weeds and we're going to throw them in the woods. They're going to decompose, and then something's going to grow in its place, and that is going to have an effect on all of the rest of the earth. Maybe a tree will grow up, and that tree is going to fall down and hit something that then has this effect and this effect, and who knows what happens. And if we put the weeds in a different place, then there's going to be a whole other option of things that could happen, and God knows it all, and his ways and judgments, they're untrackable and traceable. How, how do you fathom 
all that God is doing. And if anybody knows the plan of God best, it would be the Apostle Paul who wrote about it. And Paul, as, as he finishes writing about it, he's like, how unsearchable and inscrutable are his judgments and his ways. He is beyond our comprehension. My theology, and you'll hear me tell me, I'll tell you this in the application as well, but my theology has tension in it, and I'm great with that. If I can, ever, if I can answer every question about God to you, if I could put everything in a nice box and call it good, then I'm a, a bad teacher and I don't know my God. Because God, he will not be put in a box and he works in, way, in ways that are absolutely mysterious. And I have to trust him and believe it. I have to trust his word as it's written. Wow. Now he's going to give us some proof. He's going to quote Isaiah and the book of Job. Look at verse 34. Here's the question. For who is known... This is the Old Testament proof that God is so great and we are not. Verse 34, Isaiah 40. Uh, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Well, I say that about every chapter, but this is really one of my favorites, Isaiah 40. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Second question, who has become his counselor? Who has known the mind of the Lord? It's almost referring to, remember how it's riches, wisdom, and knowledge? Now we're going to get knowledge, wisdom, and riches with Old Testament texts. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Like, who understands all of the perfection and completion of his knowledge? What man, what woman, what president, what king, what queen could ever say, I know perfectly the mind of the Lord. I know all of his knowledge just as he knows it. Guess what? God has never learned anything. Not once has he ever learned anything. Nobody has ever come and said, oh, by the way, God, you didn't know this one fact. Did you know this? No, no. nobody has known the mind of the Lord, but only God. Oh, and yet many of us, with hubris and arrogance, we say, well, I can tell you exactly all about God. I know everything that he thinks and says. We don't. We don't. And if anything, when I get to heaven and see my Savior, I'm going to be like, was I an arrogant little man on earth? I thought I knew you. Like, like I thought I could tell everybody everything about you, but I don't. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I am undone. Second question, or who has become his counselor, Isaiah says. That's, that's giving him wisdom. The first one maybe is giving him knowledge. The second one, who has ever counseled the Lord? Well, Lord, you know how you should run things around here in Hermantown? Why don't you do a weedless roundabout? I mean, God, you can create all sorts of flora and fauna. Just create that little roundabout without weeds. I think that would help us out because we're busy people here on earth. You know, who, whoever gives counsel to the Lord, whoever gives advice and says, oh, by the way, Lord, you really messed up. And if you had listened to me, this never would have happened in the first place. This Afghanistan thing and these martyred believers. What are you doing, Lord? Come to me for counsel. I'll tell you, don't let that happen over there. You don't want your, your children massacred by the Taliban. And ISIS and the Boko Haram in Africa? Lord, I'll tell you how to do things. Don't do it that way. You want your children to have good, happy, prosperous lives. No fear, a good meal on their table, clean clothes to wear for church on Sunday. Now that, Lord, is how I could give you some counsel. And Isaiah says, don't you dare. Don't you dare question God Almighty. Right? Who gives God counsel and advice? No one. He doesn't need it, and he won't take it. 
Look at the third question, verse 35. Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? This is Job speaking. Who has ever put God in their debt? Hey, God, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to give you something you don't have, and now you owe me. Oh, well, let's not go there. Job almost went there. After all the suffering of Job, he began to question God, saying, God, where's your goodness? I haven't done anything wrong. I've been decent and moral and upright and offering sacrifices even for my children when they, they're not doing it, so I do it for them. And I've been careful about your word and in my testimony and my giving of the, the news of faith in, in the Lord. And you know what God said at the end of that suffering of Job? He never apologized. He never said, oh, I'm sorry to make you suffer, Job. I know you shed a lot of tears and your body hurt. I'm sorry. He never said that. He never said, oh, Job, let me tell you my ways and my judgments. You can understand what I'm doing here. He doesn't do that. You know what, you know what God does with Job? He appears to Job and he says, Job, be quiet. Were you there when I founded the world? Were you there when I flung the stars in the sky? Do you know where the lightning bolts come from? Where is the treasury of hail? Do you know how a deer runs through the woods and then it gives birth? Do you know what happens right before a storm with all the squirrels and the chatter? Answer, Job. Stand up like a man and tell me, do you know any of this? Job, do you know about the deep sea creatures that nobody has ever seen down there? Do you know about the little plankton in a pond that nobody has ever known? Job, answer me. You're a man. You you dare question me. You, You answer me like a man. Do you know any of this? And after over 100 questions... Job has to say, I repent and I abhor myself in ashes. Who am I to question God like he owes me something? Job says, no man can ever say God owed him anything. God is God. We are not. Wow. When God called me into ministry, I was eager and I was excited. For those of you who remember, that was a long time ago. And I'm still eager and I'm still excited. But I'm different, I, th- I hope. Because I did kind of think I had everything figured out early on in my ministry. I thought, this is easy. This God thing is easy. Give the gospel, people get saved, learn the word, we just go on. And God is God. And I'm, and I go to, you know, no. Um, God, God is God. Is God and and. Now, and now when I, when I preach a text, um, I used to not be able to sleep on Saturday night, and I still don't. But now I don't sleep on Sunday night. And, and the reason is, I, I ask myself, God, was this the intended meaning of the text? When, when you had the Apostle Paul pen this text, is that what you intended your people to receive? Did, did I give the meaning of the text correctly? And is this what you wanted them to hear and how to apply it? And it's very scary because I'm going to stand before almighty, omniscient, all-powerful God and give account. So let me give you three applications, and then I'm going to finish with my last verse, which is verse 36, the favorite one. Here's my first application. For 11 chapters, Paul has given lots of doctrine and lots of application, but heavy on the doctrinal side. By the way, don't ever separate it. Don't ever think that it's only doctrine and only application. It's not true. I've heard it preached. Romans 1 through 11 is all doctrinal teaching, and 12 through 16 is all practical help. No. Doctrine is applicable 
and every application has doctrine. But, but chapter 12 does begin more with the imperatives of now live in such and such a way, think in such and such a way, act in such and such a way. We get that in, in the previous text, but not as much. But first of all, doctrine leads to worship. After all of this truth, you know what Paul does? He says, I have to worship because doctrine leads to worship. I hear from a lot of people, doctrine's dry and it's boring and it's for theologians. Leave it for the seminaries to be doctrinal. We don't want doctrine. We want practical, 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 right? That's what we want. You look at any Christian bookstore and what are the bestsellers? I love these, I love the, I hate these titles, just so you know, I don't love them, I hate them. I hate these titles. 30 Minutes to Know God. There's a book out there, 30 Minutes to Know God. You buy it and in 30 minutes you know God. They never read Romans 11, guaranteed. Romans 11 is deep end theology. Getting to know God in 30 minutes is, is in the shallow end if it's even in the pool at all. <laughs> 30 minutes, or, or, or uh, five ways to make your marriage better. Yeah, there, there might be five ways to make your marriage better, but it's all based and grounded on doctrinal teaching of husband and wife relationships and the gospel. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The husband loves the wife to give himself for her. I mean, it's all based on doctrine and truth, and you can't just pull out some quick things and say, hey, seven ways for a happy life. Just smile in the mirror, and your whole day is going to get better. And I mean, th this is what the church is wanting today. I remember when I was preaching through the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters, verse by verse, I had a few people come up to me and they said, Pastor, you're going to kill this church. You're going to kill this church with preaching Isaiah every chapter. That's a long book and, whoa, is it bad. And I'm like, I'm going to kill the church? Well, then let the church die. Because if they don't want to jump into the deep end of Isaiah, then let's not even have it. Let's, let's just go somewhere else and do, and do it. But it. We want to be in the deep end of the pool. And Romans... Romans is not even the deep end of the pool. Romans is an ocean out there full of great, great, deep, deep, deep truth. So doctrine leads to worship. We need truth. Uh, whatever people get excited about is what will keep them in the church, I believe. And if you get excited about truth, about the word of God, about the person of Christ, the plan of God, his judgments and his ways, and you seek to search the unsearchable and you want to trace the untraceable, You'll be excited about every page, like, give me more about this page in Christ and the gospel. You know, um, that's a great thing. If you don't have that, you've got to attract him and keep him somehow with music and lights and smoke and mirrors and all sorts of things. And, and um, I could do all sorts of crazy things to fill this church with lots and lots and lots of people. But you're going to have shallow Christianity and you're going to have to keep that and magnify it. To, you want to keep them coming. You want to serve some good meals to get people in the church? you got to keep giving them good meals, but then get the desserts better. And then not just two courses, but four courses. Because people are going to get tired of it eventually, but we never get tired of truth. We never get tired of doctrine. So I want, I want a church that loves deep things. Under, you know, as understandable as we can make them for our, our minds in Christ. But doctrine leads to worship. And I hope you have an overflowing, worshipful heart because of truth. How about number two? Doctrine leads to wonder and amazement. Paul is saying, how unsearchable, how untraceable are his judgments. Doctrine leads to wonder and amazement. Here, I wrote some things down that I'm just amazed at. Um, God is sovereign. Everybody would agree, God is sovereign. And yet mankind has a free will and is responsible. That's a huge tension. I don't, I don't understand it. I just agree. Yes and yes. Um, how, how about this one? 
Jesus is 100% God and yet also 100% man. Born of a virgin. Try to explain that one. You can't. You can't. Uh, That is wonderful. That is amazing. How about this? The word of God is written by men, fallible, sinful men, and yet it it is the perfect word of God without error. I don't get it, but I believe it. Thinking of all the newborn babies born in our church, human parents reproduce and have children that start at a certain point, but these children have an immortal soul. They will live forever. That's amazing how two parents, a man and a woman, a husband and wife, can have a child, and that child will live forever. How do you explain that? A mom and dad grasshopper, they have a grasshopper, and that little grasshopper only has a certain life shelf, you know, shelf life. It just is there, and then it's gone. When there's grasshoppers in heaven, I don't know if they're the same ones. Um, how about this? Jesus paid in an, an infinite price for our sin, an infinite penalty in a finite amount of time. Another one that'll just blow your mind away, that'll create hopefully wonder and amazement. God created everything out of nothing. I can't even create something out of something. I try to nail a board together and it's like, oh, I didn't mean to nail it that tightly because now I have to pry it up and start over and rip the board. And God can create everything out of nothing. And then, I think this one's amazing. I'm just thinking of death a lot lately. I think of death all the time. But Adam and Eve died, what, 6,000 years ago? And their bodies were put in the ground, and they became dust. And who knows where all that dust went of their human bodies? And yet God can resurrect these human bodies out of the dust from 6,000 years ago. That's crazy. It's amazing. So doctrine leads us to wonder and amazement. Don't... Don't ever think that we've got it all figured out. Just always be in wonder and be in amazement. Don't lose the awe of God. And then thirdly, doctrine humbles us. Truth makes us small. Doctrine shows me who I am. Separated, wretched, desperate, sinful, and just how awesome and how big God is. So doctrine humbles us. And I hope you have a sense of humility about all things. You're going to to find by application in chapter 12. Listen to this, everybody. This is news. You ready for this news? Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. We won't get there for a while. There's nobody great here. I'm not great. You're not great. God is great. Right? Just doctrine humbles us. And then finally, this last word of praise, because he's not done yet. After all that he has shared with us, Paul, he's like, oh, wait a minute. I have to just give another word of praise. One more final word. Verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Isn't that great? You want to, what does it mean? It means this. For of him. For of him, of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the origin of all things. Our Savior Jesus said, let there be light, and there was light. He created this world. He created every planet. He created you and I. 
Jesus Christ is the origin of all things. He is the beginning, the alpha of all things. Nothing comes apart from the Lord Jesus Christ making it happen. So Jesus is the beginning of all things. For of him, oh, and then it says, and through him. Not only is Jesus Christ the origin of all things, Jesus Christ is the sustainer of, of all things. Now, I don't want to alarm you, and I'm going to alarm you on purpose, but the chair that you're sitting on is, is moving. It's moving. It's actually made of molecules that have electrons, protons, and neutrons, SPDF levels for those electrons, and they are spinning very fast, and in between there's, you know, these electrons, protons, and neutrons, and all the different levels, there's space between all of them. And it just happens that they're moving so fast, it appears to be a, a hard surface. But actually, your chair is spinning and moving at very fast speeds. And Jesus is sustaining all of those electronic bo- electron bonds, or whatever you call it, covalent bonds. He's holding them all together. And all Jesus has to do is say, hmm, let that chair release its covalent bonds, or whatever you call them, ionic bonds, or whatever. I, I'm not the chemistry person here. Jesus could simply say, let all of those bonds between those atoms and electrons break apart, and that chair will blow up in a big atomic explosion. It'll just completely explode with power. Who's holding all of those atoms and molecules together? Jesus. Next time you're fishing, well, it's coming up to hunting season now, but next time you're fishing and you're on the water, what is water made of? H2O, two hydrogen, one oxygen, And if you separate the hydrogen and the oxygen, you get hydrogen gas and oxygen gas, two of the most flammable gases known to man. And the ocean is full of hydrogen gas and oxygen gas. It just happens that they're bonded together. Jesus sustains the bond. And all he has to do is say, okay, oceans, release your bonds, and we've got hydrogen and oxygen, and then Jesus just throws a match, and it all goes up in flame. See how everything is full of trepidation here. We, you know, but praise God, he's the origin of all things. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. And then, and to him are all things. He is the goal of everything. Everything in this world has its ultimate goal in Jesus Christ. You work for the glory of Christ. You lo- you, husbands, love, love your wives for the glory of Christ. Wives, respect your husbands for the glory of Christ. Raise your children for the glory of Christ. Grandparents, watch over your grandchildren for the glory of Christ. This, he is the goal of all things. And if we don't aim for that goal, we'll miss it. So of him and through him and to him are all things. And then one final bit, to him be glory forever. He gets all the glory. He will not share his glory with anybody else. He will not. He refuses and he can't because he is God, all glorious, all glorious God. Man, I feel so inadequate. I feel like I'm supposed to be up on Mount Everest with this, and I, I just gave you, like, Piedmont Heights. But, but this is glorious and good news, isn't it? What a praise to God. That's it. I'm, I feel like there should be more, but that's it. It's where the amen comes in. Let's, let's, um, let's pray. Father, I feel so inadequate. These are the loftiest words of the greatness and grandeur of your glory. I'm almost ashamed that I tried to even, I'm ashamed I even tried to, to preach it. It's, um, you are so great.
I pray that every person here listening, either on the live stream or in person, would bow their knee and humble themselves and recognize your greatness. Recognize the riches of the gospel that Christ died for us and rose from the dead. That their faith would be in Jesus alone, not with works of religion, not with their own good efforts, not anything they have deserved or earned, but Jesus only and Jesus alone for eternal life. No one can steal glory, and religion steals a lot of glory from Christ. Shame on religion, trying to steal what Jesus Christ has accomplished and done on our behalf by himself. So I pray that there'll be some response. Maybe there'll be someone saved today by grace through faith. Maybe people will be excited about doctrine and even wanting deeper things and to search out even more unsearchable things. And that can only lead us to greater worship, greater wonder, and greater humility. May these things be found in our church, a worshiping church, a church that wonders and is amazed at Christ. And may we be a humble church because of doctrine, because of the truth that we are putting in our hearts and minds. To Jesus Christ, who is the origin of all things, the sustainer of all things, and the goal of all things. May he have the glory forever and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hmm. Wow. Well, tonight we begin at, um, after the choir and all of that, we'll begin at 6 with Romans 12.1. What's our response to the glory and the greatness of God? And we'll talk about that tonight. And then we'll also have the Lord's Supper. So we'll break the bread and drink the cup in remembrance of Jesus. But again, thank you, church family. I just, I just love you all, and I, I just love being with you. It is great to be together to give glory to God. So um, God bless you this week as we serve the Lord together. Again, if you, can, if you are able to stay after, um, we'll have pizzas and things to drink after the, uh, after the cleaning of the roundabout. Once we know how many people are helping clean up, we'll order pizza, have it delivered here. But let's get that roundabout looking good. And when you come back to church tonight, everybody can see a, a beautiful piece of Hermantown. Even you Duluth people can come out and lend us a helping hand. That would be the Christian thing to do, Eric. See you on the mound. By the way, if you do go out and help us on the mound, we do have uh, yellow, bright yellow vests we'd like you to wear just so the traffic going around and around and around, they can see you, all right? But God bless.